edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I thank you for joining me this morning, for sharing the show with a friend, giving the thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things help to get this show out to more individuals. And also, please keep in mind that I am part of the Christian podcast community, so if you want to take a look at some other podcasts that are available, just go to uh, podcast.strivingforeternity.org. And as part of that community, you should be able to find numerous podcasts I would highly recommend to you. So with that, let's begin today's episode with our law of the day. And this one is a two-part law. Essentially, it's in two different places. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 21 says this, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Moloch, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. And then, parallel passage in Leviticus chapter 20, verses 1 through 5. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, Any one of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, who gives any of his children to Moloch, shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I myself will set my face against that man, and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given one of his children to Moloch, to make my sanctuary unclean, and to profane my holy name. And if the people of the land do at all close their eyes to that man, when he gives one of his children to Moloch, and do not put him to death, then I will set my face against that man and against his clan, and will cut them off from among their people, him and all who follow him in whoring after Moloch. So those two laws given to the people of Israel, address the topic of Moloch. So we first need to figure out who is Moloch. Well, when you do a little bit of research on that, you'll find that he is a god worshipped by the Ammonites living in the land of Canaan and other people groups there. But he is described as the Ammonite god. Now, of course, all the people in the land worshipped many different gods. Baal, Asherah, Moloch, and I think... I'm pretty sure they all recognized each other's gods, but some of them had more affinity to one god versus the other gods. Or, depending on what season it was, you might, you might focus on one god rather than another. So, for example, Moloch was the god of harvest and fertility. So, if you were going through a season of life that involved planting something, harvesting your fields, and maybe trying to start a family, maybe your focus would be more on the god Moloch. Now this god, in order to receive the blessing of good crops and more children, he required human sacrifice, namely child sacrifice. And typically, it was the firstborn. Now the child would be burned alive in an oven that was formed to look like Moloch. Now Moloch took the form of a half-bull, half-man type of god. So they would, they would make some kind of a furnace out of clay or metal that looked like that, and the child would be sacrificed in this way. Now, location of these sacrifices, although they were done before Israel arrived, and even afterwards, sadly, uh, the central location was a place called Topheth, which is called Place of the Drum, and it's located in the Valley of Hinnom, which is just south of Jerusalem. Now, it's called the place of the drum because the priests and the priestesses would beat drums very loudly in order to drown out the cries of the children. 
they wanted to avoid having the parents change their mind. Now later, that place, the Valley of Hinnom, was known as Gehenna. So Ge, or place, Henna, related to Hinnom. And Gehenna is what became the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. And it's the place where Jesus describes as the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So when he refers to Gehenna, and, he, and Jesus is talking about hell, he's, he's getting the listeners' minds fixed on the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem, because they would have been very familiar with what Gehenna was, the smell, the smoldering, um, the garbage, things like that. So anyways, basically in the New Testament, that location becomes a picture of hell. Now, there's some other possible connections to uh, child sacrifice in other parts of the Mediterranean. So, the Phoenicians were a people group that were descendants of the Canaanites, and they were a seafaring people. And they went all throughout the Mediterranean Sea, and they settled in Spain. There are archaeological finds of, of child sacrifice being done in Spain, and they also settled in Carthage, and later would be known as the Carthaginians. So the Carthaginians also practiced child sacrifice. And again, there's archaeological uh, digs of that, as well as uh, ancient historical accounts. Uh, one, one person is Diodorus, who describes uh, the Canaanite uh, sacrifice of children being practiced by the Carthaginians. Uh, he did not call it Canaanite. He simply said it was the Carthaginians. But uh, it's easy to trace it because there's such close um, family ties between the two groups. And Certainly, it was the Phoenicians, a.k.a. Canaanites, who first settled in what's today Libya to form the city of Carthage. Interestingly, there are some uh, historians that argue that uh, the people of Minos also engaged in a form of child sacrifice uh, amongst the kind of the Greek culture, that very ancient Greek culture. And this is because the Minotaur... The bull of Minos, that's where Minotaur would come from, the, the word, is a half-human, half-bull. And in the story, Minotaur would consume children who were offered to it as a sacrifice. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, uh, children from Athens would be taken or purchased as slaves, and those children from Athens would be sent to the labyrinth to be sacrificed to the Minotaur. And this sacrifice had to be given to avoid any curses and punishment that would fall upon the people of Minos. So, going back to the very purpose of child sacrifice, I mean, why would anybody do that? I mean, it's ridiculous, right? It's, it's stupid. It's crazy. Just for a good harvest or for fertility? Well, think of it this way. Um, if you did not sacrifice your child in that culture you risk incurring the wrath of Moloch. So the community might say that you are putting them and the rest of the community at risk by not doing this. You're going to incur the wrath of Moloch, and you don't want that upon either your children or others' children. And that could lead to a poor harvest, so economic devastation, economic ruin. It could lead to infertility, so no more children in the future, or deformed children in the future. And if a child was supposed to be sacrificed, but was not, 
that child would be viewed as under the curse of Moloch. So the life of the child would be full of pain and suffering, and it would be a terrible life to live. So it would have been better for that child to have been sacrificed than to have allowed that child to live and defy the demands of Moloch. So if you did not participate in this, you would have been viewed as a risk to the community and as unwise for your own family. Now, when we take a look at some modern application, the first thing we need to keep in mind is that even though Moloch is not named today, we don't worship that God today, I don't know of anybody who's doing that at, per se, the sacrifice of children does continue, and it continues in the form of abortion. So in that regard, Moloch is being worshipped today still. And if you just consider that abortion is done primarily for economic reasons, which is just the same as why Moloch was worshipped, why children were sacrificed in the ancient world for economic prosperity and blessing. Today, unwanted children are sacrificed in the name of economic blessing. I need to go to school, or my career would be ruined, I would have to quit my job, I would have to get a different job, it would cost money to get childcare or to be able to provide for this child. So all those economic reasons are reasons given to make the sacrifice. The idea being that if the sacrifice is made, then the blessing will come or disaster will be averted. Also, future family blessing. There are, there are individuals who, you know, they would say that they're not ready to have kids, that they want to be able to have kids that they want and that they can provide for. So basically, um, by sacrificing the child now, they can have a stronger family in the future, a better family, a more blessed family in the future. And the final example given would be that the child is cursed or deformed. So and we see this happening with children with Down syndrome. Down syndrome is pretty much being eliminated completely. It's being eliminated not through medicine, but through death, through purging, through eugenics. The child that is cursed, it would be better for that child to die than to live a life of pain and suffering. And so even parents today think that way when it comes to their child. They, if they know that child has Down syndrome or some kind of other genetic disorder, many of them would make the case that it would be better for the child to die than to continue. So the sacrifice should be made or else they will be under the curse. Sadly, um, abortion doctors today are basically the new priests of Moloch and distractions like drums in the past, distractions today are used in order to keep people from changing their mind. Whether you have helpers that are ushering women into the clinic or making loud noises to drown out any gospel message that's being preached, um, all those things are being utilized today to continue the practice. So, Moloch worship is alive and well, millions of children being slaughtered. The thing is, though, is that God views it as both a sin and a crime. So with this law, those parents who give up their children, and those, of course, who are involved in taking the life, so the priest, a.k.a. the abortion doctor today, those individuals are to be punished. They are to be given the death penalty. Now, you know, someone might say that that's not fair, I mean, they they kill someone, so why would you kill them in return? Well, because the law is vengeance. And a, a, a debt is owed. A payment must be made because such a 
transgression has done. I mean, if you murder someone made in the image of God, you forfeit your life. I mean, uh, that law was given back in Genesis after the Noahic covenant. So it's a sin and a crime. And those who engage in it need to be punished with the most severe punishment because there's nothing as profane as sacrificing one's children in the land. Now, those people who stand by and let it happen, they also are judged. Now, they're not to necessarily get a civil punishment, civil penalty, but God warns them that there will be judgment upon that community. And it's ironic, right? Because idolatry says that if you don't partake of idolatry, the community will be harmed. If you don't sacrifice to Moloch, everybody will be affected by the famine. Okay, so it's not just you. Well, God says no. The other way is actually true. If you sacrifice to Moloch, there will be judgment in the land. And I want to spend a minute here talking about that. There's always, you can't avoid this, there's always a God of any system, there's always sin, there's always crime, and there's always communal punishment. To give a modern example, those who believe that we are suffering under disastrous climate change, they would say that we have sinned against the planet, and it's collective. We're all guilty, and we're all going to be punished. And in a sense, Mother Nature, quote, is kicking us out of the land, is punishing us. And there's plenty of movies that talk about that, too. But the point is, though, is that you can't avoid it. There's always a God, and there's always communal punishment. The question is, which one is it? Which one's the true God? Which law is the correct law that we follow? And per scripture, God is saying, if you engage in idolatry in this way, you're going to get kicked out of the land. It's going to affect the community. And just like the Canaanites and the Ammonites and the Amorites were spewed or vomited out of the land, so the same will happen to Israel if they fall into these practices. All right, that is our law of the day. And I'd like to move on now to our regular scheduled program, which is to cover the book Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. And again, for those of you just tuning in, uh, Rutherford's book was written in the 1600s, very influential on the American War for Independence and the founding of our country. Now, this book, The Law is the King, Lex Rex, uh, we're in chapter 10 this week, and I'm just going through uh, one or two chapters each week, uh, the very short chapters, just giving a brief summary so that hopefully you would find it interesting and perhaps pick up a copy for yourself and, and take a look at it. I think it's very uh, worthwhile. So, chapter 10. Here's the question for 10. Are lower magistrates also stewards of God or merely deputies of the national government? Now, this is an important question because... Basically, it means this. Do those rulers that are under the king, do they have their own authority, in a sense, in their own right, or are they just employees of the king? They just serve the king. And there's a difference, though. Um, now, he would argue that they are authorities in their own right. They have authority. They are magistrates. And if the king were to die, they would still have authority. They are no less stewards of God than the king is. And even though they are accountable to the king in some sense, like everybody is, they're ultimately accountable to God and they are accountable to the people themselves. Now, an example of this would be that God had ordained Moses in Exodus to appoint judges of thousands, hundreds, 
50s, and 10s. They didn't just work for Moses. They were representative of the people. They were to judge the people. They had authority in their own right. And even if Moses were to die, and eventually he did, those judges still had authority. So that's the difference, right? Because uh, a modern example would just be uh, an employee of the president, perhaps some, some secretary, some head of a department, right? Now, the president appoints that person. Um, that person kind of works for the president. And if that administration goes away, the new president, the new administration can choose whether to fire that individual or to keep them on. I mean, maybe like, for example, in the Old Testament, the case of Daniel. Daniel served under Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar died, Daniel later on served under Darius. So you, you can serve under multiple administrations. Now, in the modern sense, the new administration can keep that person or fire them. But when the new administration comes into office, they don't get to remove Supreme Court judges. They don't get to remove governors, okay? So the governors are under the president in a sense, but they have authority in their own right that's not actually derived from the president. It's derived from another source, namely the people. And so in this regard, there's a difference between someone who's just hired by the king or who's employed by the king and someone who is an authority of their own right but is under the king. Now, Rutherford would go on in this chapter to say that citizens are to obey both the lesser and the greater magistrates when able. So we owe more deference and more respect to the higher office. But if the higher office commands evil or sin and the lower magistrate is doing the right thing, then we need to obey the lower magistrate. But it's also vice versa is true too. If the lower magistrate is doing evil, but the higher authority, the king or the, or the president, is doing good, we need to obey the highest lawful authority. And that kind of lines up with the idea of we obey God rather than men. If all of the earthly authorities are sinning or commanding sin or, or, or prohibiting righteousness, then we have no choice but to obey the highest lawful authority, which is God himself. All this is true regardless of the former government. So whether it's an aristocracy, monarchy, or democracy, they all serve the same function, despite their forms. And the lesser magistrates cannot be removed from office at the whim of the king. Now, there are some positions that the king controls completely, and I've already given you a couple of examples of this, but another example would be the armor bearer. So, if you think back to King Saul in the Old Testament, he had an armor bearer, and the armor bearer was an official position, kind of like the cup bearer too. And the cup bearer and the armor bearer were basically employees of the king, of King Saul. They didn't really have any authority in their own right. They were not a lesser magistrate in that regard. They were simply an employee of the government. And so if King Saul wanted to just change out and get another armor bearer, he didn't like the one that he had, he could do that. He could fire him and he could get another one. And when King Saul dies, the armor bearer has no job unless by happenstance the next king wants to keep that person as an armor bearer, but their authority is tied, their job, their position, their role is tied to the king who hired them. In that sense, 
um, they are not a lesser magistrate. They are just a deputy. And that answers the question, do lesser magistrates have their own authority? And the answer is yes. And the same rules apply to them as it would apply to the king. Chapter 11 asks the next question. Do the people and their representatives have power over the state? And the answer, of course, is yes. And here's a quote from Rutherford. When the supreme magistrate refuses to execute the judgment of the Lord, those who made him the supreme magistrate under God have the sovereign liberty to remove their sanction from such a magistrate, end quote. He gives the example of Samuel taking away his anointing from Saul and giving it to David, and also the example of Moses and the judges. Once the judges are appointed by Moses, um, Moses cannot simply replace them by his whim, unless it can be demonstrated that they are failing in their duty. But if Moses were to commit some error, the judges are obligated not to follow him in that error. Just because they were appointed by him doesn't mean that if Moses were to lead them into sin, that they should just go along with that. No, the judges should correct him and exhort him to do the right thing, and they should lead their people under their care. Well, they should obey God, even if by some strange chance, Moses does not obey God. So there's a sense in which the people and the representatives have power over the state, because the state does not have absolute power. And if the state falls into tyrannical behavior, the people and the representatives have an obligation first to correct the highest authority, to steer the boat back to the right direction, or in the worst possible scenario, get a new captain of the boat. Now, God has not, and this is an important point that Rutherford brings up, God has not committed the well-being of the nation only to the king. Now think about that for a second. That's an interesting way of putting it. The safety, security, and well-being of the nation, yes, they have been put into the hands of the king, who is the captain of the ship, but they haven't been put into just his hands. All the lesser magistrates are part of this. They all are committed to the well-being of the nation. And if the king begins to fail in his duty and leads the nation down a path of destruction and slavery and servitude, impoverishment, the lesser magistrates have an obligation to still do what's best for the nation. Again, use the analogy of a ship on the high seas. If the captain begins to go mad and is making some very bad decisions, the first mate's job is to correct the captain and to help him. But if things continue down a dark path and the ship is at risk of being lost, it would be wrong for the crew and the first mate to just stand by and let it happen. Interestingly, there's some modern examples of this that I've heard stories about, and, and maybe those of you listening have as well. There are stories of, um, in some Asian cultures, since honor and deference to higher authority is such an important thing, that there have been cases where the senior pilot has made a bad decision and the junior pilot, uh, maybe it was a training uh, scenario or an actual um, flight involving passengers or cargo, but when the senior pilot made a bad decision, the junior pilot, out of honor and deference to the senior pilot, would, sit, would not say anything. 
it would just stay silent because it would be shameful for him to correct the senior pilot or even to take control of the aircraft in order to avert disaster. And so there have been cases where the junior pilot just lets the airplane crash. And in those cultures where honor and shame are, are very strong. And so at some point, there the, the crew must step in to save the ship. The passengers aren't stepping in necessarily, although I suppose that they could, but the first mate, the crew, the rest of the uh, those involved in the safety and security of the ship have a duty, a responsibility to preserve the well-being of the passengers of the vessel itself. And this applies to the vessel of the nation also. In the Bible, there are examples where the lesser magistrates resolved an issue or saved the state, if you will. And in 2 Kings chapter 11, basically you have the example of Jehoiada and the usurper, Queen Athaliah. Now, if you read that story, you'll find that Athaliah took control of the throne, killed the entire royal family, except for Joash, who was a young boy, and basically ruled for several years as queen. Now, Jehoiada was one of the lesser magistrates, and him, along with several of the captains, coordinated to remove the queen and to establish Joash. And that happened. Interestingly, when that plot takes effect, the queen screams, treason, treason, treason. But it's actually she that committed treason, and she is arrested and executed. So, it, you know, even the usurper thinks that when the lesser magistrates are going against them, that it's treason. Everyone thinks it's treason when they're the ones on the receiving end of it. But the question is, what does God say? What's the correct way? And the queen committed murder and usurped the throne, violating the law, and was therefore not a lawful authority. And so Jehoiada and the captains were correct in taking back control of the nation and giving it to the rightful authority, namely the line of David, uh, Joash. Now, if the lesser magistrates fail to act, the people may act in a very limited way. And another example in the Old Testament is found in 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 through 46. And if you read that, there's a part where basically King Saul says that no one, he makes a command, no one is allowed to eat any food until the battle is won. And Jonathan, his son, at first did not hear that command. He was away doing something else. He did not know about that command when it was given. And he eats some honey to recover his strength. And he gives it to the people to strengthen them for the battle. And they do win the battle. But when Saul finds out about it, he basically commands that Jonathan is to be executed. Because Jonathan violated the king's command. Even though Jonathan had not known about that command beforehand. But it was interesting is that the people interfere. The people themselves, they step in and prevent Jonathan from being arrested and executed. They say no, and the matter is dropped. Saul doesn't push it any further. He lets it go. So there are examples 
where the people may step in when their ruler is doing something very wrong and very wicked, um, and they can prevent it from, from being carried out. I mean, that's an example of kind of a passive or civil disobedience where you're not, you're not removing King Saul from office. You are simply not following through his command. You are preventing his wicked command from being carried out. And there is a difference. And we'll talk more about, well, can the people remove an authority on their own if none of the lesser magistrates help them? And that's a very scary situation. But earlier in the, in the book, we do read that Rutherford says that in times of desperation, if none of the lesser magistrates are doing their job, the people may appoint a new person as a lesser magistrate to represent them and to serve their interests. And through that, perhaps, a new government can be established. But it has to be orderly and in accordance with God's word. So that'll do it for today. These two short chapters very much complement each other and they address both topics very well. Again, if lesser magistrates were just employees of the king, they would not have authority from God in their own right. But since they do have their own authority, they have also responsibility to seek the good of the kingdom, especially if the king seeks its destruction. They are to correct the king and, if necessary, refuse to carry out his wicked orders. And if the king persists in tyranny, there might be a situation where the lesser magistrates have to come together and take control of the ship so that the captain who's gone crazy will not run it into the ground. And maybe that means that the people elect a new representative and give their authority, uh, their sanction, to another king instead of the old king. So thank you again for joining me today. I pray this has been a blessing to you. And again, I encourage you to pick up Lex Rex and start reading it if you haven't had a chance to do so yet. It's such a blessing uh, for those who, as Christians, want to have a, a solid understanding of their relationship between themselves and the government. So with that, until next time, take care and God bless.